Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Eden Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm free, Ed. I am um? I am finally free. I've cancelled my Netflix account. Wow. I know. And this was even before the Bloomberg article about them trying to get people to put in passwords, which is... Mm sort of ridiculous when you think about it because the number of kids who use netflix on the profiles and just anyway i just let people have it the, th- the thing is for me it was just realizing how little i was using it for the stuff that netflix makes that is actually quite good which mm-hmm. more often than not is actually like quite uh quite difficult to watch and i think i just hit absolute saturation point with it and couldn't make choices because it just feels like in just this kind of something that will never be complete in a bad way instead of like oh look at all of this variety it just became like complete overwhelm because it's surely impossible for any human to watch a decent amount of netflix and i don't know it's not like i set myself a challenge to watch <laughs> loads of it but my list was just getting bigger and I wasn't cutting down on it and I don't know if it's because it is a platform that just has arguably too much now mm. but I just took and I just needed to bring my outgoings down and realizing how much I was paying for different streaming platforms so you know what I might mix it up a bit try one then hop over to another at the moment I've still just got movie going because I think it is more streamlined and curated and chosen. A little bit low on the laughs is all I'll say about Mubi. And mm. It would be nice to find something that is, you know, just a, has a bit more levity to it. Yeah. I mean, Tony Erdman's on there. Great. But just a bit more would be nice. But honestly, I do feel... <laughs> I just kind of realised that like I use YouTube for a lot of kind of wallpaper watching and also really quite unique stuff from creators and I thought I'd rather do that and then you know spend a bit more money on Patreon and things like that rather than just kind of chuck pennies into the void really mm. so that's how I am how are you yeah I'm good uh, I was just trying to think of the last time I actually watched anything on Netflix I think the last time I watched something I watched Rolling Thunder Review recently, oh, which yeah. was like the only thing that I went out of my way to watch on Netflix. Any other time that I go on there, it's very much kind of like scrolling through and thinking, eh, none of this like really, none of this is really hitting. And then I'll usually go and watch something on on movie or the Criterion channel if I want to watch a movie or I'll go to Hulu, which has like a better selection of TV stuff if I want to watch TV. Uh, and by TV, I mean uh, Dragon Ball, because I'm still slowly working my way through that show. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm very much in the same situation. If I didn't uh, get Netflix because I use my parents' account, uh, I also would probably not have it as a service. Um, mm. 
though they're probably getting the better end of the deal because they use my Hulu and my HBO Max. So yeah, I should probably yeah. try and extract some money from them somehow. <laughs> but, uh, no. Um, <laughs> yes, I am. A, it's all equitable. I'm endorsing you taking more money from the Davies. <laughs> Um, but no, I'm fine. Uh, speaking of my parents, they both got their second jab of the vaccine yesterday on the day we were recording. Yeah. And uh, I'm very, very excited for them. Very, very happy. Obviously takes a load off of my mind, even though I'm still uh, some way away from getting a vaccine myself, uh, being unfortunately too young and healthy to qualify for them. Although I believe starting Monday, the age limit for vaccines in florida goes down to 40 so presumably if they lower it down to 30 next time i'll be qualified and be able to go and uh, get one hopefully in the the near future um i did pre-register for one this week so i'm in their system if and when they decide that i should get one so that's nice yeah. <laughs> just kind of see the light of the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel on that one and other than that you know the main thing that i've been doing this week other than uh, preparation for the main topic, which we'll get to soon, uh, has been playing through uh, Yakuza 2, the, or Yakuza Kiwami 2, the remake of it, that I've been playing for the best part of a month at this point, because it's quite a long game and there's lots to do in it. And it's been tremendous fun. Those games are ridiculous, and they are just tremendously good at getting you to kind of keep coming back to try all of their weird little subplots that they've got. But I did have a moment where I just went, oh, fuck off, um, was playing it in an, admad- in an uh, admiring way, in the sense of being like, I cannot believe, I cannot believe you've done this, to quote the classic meme, <laughs> which was, I got to the end of a chapter where you are fighting off all of these ninjas in a pagoda. Not only a pagoda, a pagoda that has risen out from inside of another pagoda. And I didn't understand why that was. That was never explained why there was a secret pagoda hidden inside a regular one. But you fight your way to the top and then you're confronted with this villain. And then you think, okay, time for the fight. And the fight is not with the villain, but with two Bengal tigers that he unleashes on you. And then you have to beat them to death. That's <laughs> and it's not just great. such. <laughs> No, really not great. Uh, but, but I did kind of, I did find that very, very funny. Just kind of being like, okay, I mean, these games are ridiculous, but this seems like especially silly. <laughs> but um, I did beat them. I did beat them both to death um, because that's what the game wanted me to do. I am uh, much like the protagonist of Bioshock. I'm just doing what the game tells me to, and that makes me bad for some reason. Um, the message of that game is a little muddled uh but um i've really been enjoying those games and all of the dumb stuff they have you do <laughs> so uh i'm going to enjoy playing through the rest of them over the course of the year uh even though there are a bunch of them and they are all very very long but then again i'm stuck in my house so, <laughs> so <laughs> i've got no i've got no reason to complain uh, so we'll go on to the news for this week and I think probably the main news, well, there's, there's two main news stories, but I think the biggest, bigger one for entertainment more generally was it was the Oscar nominations this week. They were announced on uh, Monday and shockingly, they were not bad yeah. this year. I mean, obviously there are, we'll get into some of the um, sort of minor controversies around some of them, but it didn't feel as if there was like a huge amount of, of a huge amount to complain about really, you know, like... Uh, you had two women nominated for Best Director in 
Chloe Zhao for Nomadland and Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, which is a first in Oscar history, I believe. There's never been two women nominated in the same year previously, uh, which is obviously an indictment, but hey-ho, um, as at least a, a little bit of an advance. Minari, after ridiculously being nominated for like Best Foreign Language at the uh, Golden Globes, got a really nice showing at the uh, Oscars with nominations in Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, uh, Actor for Steven Yeun, who um, everyone loves, uh, as evidenced by that video of him going around where people just keep running up to kiss him on the set of uh, The Walking Dead. The one, the one uh, bad spot for me being the sheer number of nominations for Mank, because I really didn't enjoy that movie. Mm. Um, but uh, I think it missed out on editing, which, you know, in terms of looking at the tea leaves of what Oscar voters kind of like lean towards, apparently is a bad sign for its overall uh, chances. Uh, and speaking of tea leaves, uh, Tea Leaf himself, uh, <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya of uh, Television Psychoville, was uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor for uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is great, uh, as was his co-star Lakeith Stanfield, which is perplexing. Because <laughs> uh, they are they are the titular roles. Yeah, how about that? I think it was Guy Roby who said, so this film had no leads then, according to the Academy. Mm. But then it was Emily Vandever who had a good theory about it isn't that right ed you explained it to me really beautifully if you're able to explain it to everyone else uh yeah so this was in an article for vox uh, emily vanderwerf who's their kind of chief cultural uh, editor and critic she wrote this very good explainer which uh she she prefaced basically saying that she doesn't 100 percent know that this has happened this is just her supposition based on what she knows about how the academy voting works but in the in most of the categories uh, at the Oscars, when people vote, the, they have to vote, you know, for certain actors, or they have for certain people in certain roles. So, like, if someone is nominated for Best Editing, you can't, like, put them in a different category. But for the acting categories, because obviously there is lead and they're supporting, even if a studio um, campaigns for an actor in a certain category, there's nothing that says that the voters can't put them in the other one if they feel really strongly that someone is in fact uh, a lead when they're being campaigned as supporting or vice versa. And what Emily uh, Vanderwerth said was that she thought that maybe Lakeith Stanfield got a lot of votes in best lead, but was ultimately didn't get enough to make it into the top five because it's quite a, cate- uh, uh, a competitive category this year, but that he may have got a lot of votes in supporting actor just as kind of like runoff because some people might have said for some reason that they felt that he was supporting versus lead which is perplexing in its own way but because supporting actor is a little more of a diffuse category this year and like the sort of thing where there weren't really that many people who you could point to as really being strongly favored in that category except maybe Daniel Kaluuya because you could argue that he is a supporting character in in that movie then you know, he may have just got enough runoff votes essentially to qualify for best supporting. So you end up in this weird situation in a movie in which arguably they are both the lead, but definitely at least one of them is the lead. They both got nominated for supporting. Although uh, I thought Lucky Stanfield himself had the best reaction to it, which was on Instagram, just going like, lol, I don't know. <laughs> just kind of basking in the fact that he is an Oscar nominee, but in a way that doesn't really make sense, (laughs) given the film that he's nominated for. Yeah, I think it's interesting that what you're saying there, Ed, about, like, it is a more sort of diffuse 
selection this year and it's always really helpful when you have someone as brilliant as uh, Emily Vanderwerf who really understands the machinations of the academy and the systems because mm. I still feel on the back foot about it yeah and I feel like that's sort of intentional because the academy wants to maintain its kind of sort of exclusivity for the academy and a bit of the mystery but sometimes that means it's not fantastically transparent and I think it's had to undo a lot of what I think it was trying to put forward a certain sense of mystique and that it is a club and it's meritocratic but that doesn't really actually exist in the world unless you actively make it <laughs> um, that way. So you kind of need uh, transparency in order to have a fair club. And I, th- I think what jumped out at me this year was, yeah, there was nothing that was like, oh, this is completely horrific, apart from maybe like, for the love of God, could we not have given Glenn Close an Oscar sooner so that she won't possibly <laughs> be in the running to limp forward on Hillbilly Elegy? Because let's be honest, no one... That is not an Oscar-winning role, and that you know mm. that is an Oscar bait role. And compared to other people in that category, like some really lovely nods, and that that shouldn't be a surprise that Yujung Yun for Minari is in the running. But you know the fact that M- Maria Bakalova has almost like that Borat's almost like crashed the Academy again in a way I think is really fun, mm-hmm. and it's great to have. Um, Maria Bakalova nominated, if only just to see, and and for screenplay as well, um, for Borat, if only just to see the entire title, <laughs> you know, because everyone just says the Borat sequel, but it's like, oh yeah, no, that is a really mm. stupidly named film. Will they be able to fit it on the figurine, like etching, you know, where they solder it at the end? <laughs> that would be fun. I feel like she should win just for that. And yeah, you know, I am, uh, as always, a supporter of a top laugh, but I think looking at this list and it is a year that is more diverse and also kind of has really sad inclusions, you know, could Chadwick Boseman win Oscar posthumously? Mm. It's also the list that made me think, well, what are the causal factors that have led to this? What are we learning Mm -hmm. about the Academy's behaviour? Is this a result of, a more conscientious drive to diversify the academy are we sort of phasing out of the kind of old guard but the problem is i feel like that happens really you know when moonlight won and then it was green book and you know it's like oh my god how can we kind of flip between them and it kind of feels like you know obama shaking trump's hand <laughs> with mm. the you know so I, I don't think this means like, oh, this is great because, you know, Parasite won last year and that means that, you know, we're on a, we're on a roll now. Things, you know, we need like a good five years to see. But then I think, what am I looking, why am I looking for the Oscars for this? You know, you can't get away from the fact that the Oscars is still the major film award and it is culturally significant but that we look to it to kind of at least certain members of the film community in whatever space you take up in that community 
and for myself looking for that justice in being Mm. like look there needs to be fairness in this cultural significance and you are essentially you know you the academy are lying if you believe that you are vanguards of progression and innovation if you leave swathes of people behind on the basis of their (laughs) race gender the categories are woolly are they coming apart at the seams you know and I was thinking about it on my ended up going on a very nice long walk today because it was beautiful in Glasgow today that's just a little non-media related fact for you uh my boyfriend is really really into football and the way that he is into football is actually very similar into how I'm into films because some people will just go to football matches and talk about players and that's it whereas he knows the history of his club various different managers owners all of that and I'm like oh my god you know because they are structured in incredibly similar ways and some people will just watch a film and no actors but you know you and I and lots of other film lovers and you know there's no correct way to enjoy something I'm not trying to say that this is a better way to do it this is just how we engage with it and it made me think of like oh yeah but you know football is a spectator sport and with films when the awards come out you're like oh yeah it's just a massive competition on top of competition like this is really valuable because I can still really enjoy a film and think oh that was the best film of the year but now it's like should that necessarily get the Oscar but it is a bit it is a bit gladiator I think we are throwing everyone into the ring and it's always a bit bloody and dusty. And you're like, do we have to do this? Can we just turn away? But I don't want to do that at a point where it would deny, you know, the significance. The fact that Riz Ahmed is the first Muslim actor, I think, to ever be nominated. I want it to be significant, but I think we're still at this really creaky sort of hinge point, this transition point where there doesn't seem to be any kind of coherence from the Academy at the moment because Mm. we are kind of ricocheting back and forth quite rapidly between year to year as to how diverse things are. But maybe it is too much to ask for justice from tiny gold men, Ed. (laughs) For me, the Oscars, like, they're not necessarily a indication of things getting better in the industry but they are you know kind of significant in terms of like allowing people more you know people who get nominated like you mentioned Riz Ahmed or um uh, Stephen Yoon or Lee Isaac Chung like people who are not usually in that conversation because you know their stories tend not to be told and people like them to have in the past generally been excluded from conversations about actors or directors um you know getting a nomination even if they don't win you know could potentially give them more opportunities to make more work and maybe you know i could certainly see like if riz ahmed wins best actor um you know i could definitely see him using that based on his other work you know his his activism and stuff like that to try and use it as a way to raise up other people and other creators and maybe to try and get more people involved in the industry in the same way that someone like an ava duvernay has done you know like trying to really kind of give people more opportunities and more chance because you know you have been able to get your foot in the door and that i think you know is kind of an important and vital thing for them and and also just Mm -hmm. like you know at a basic level you know the oscars are a good focal point for people who 
you know, are interested in films, but maybe don't follow them like on a week to week basis or, you know, don't have that kind of like focus on everything that's happening in the industry that you or I do, where, you know, they can say, OK, what are the what are the eight movies that I should see? And if like a bunch more people decide to watch Minari or The Sound of Metal, um, that's got to be a plus uh, I think, you know, like even, uh, or, or, you know, something like Wolf Walkers, the uh, movie, the Irish animated movie that is, I think in the US has only really been available on Apple TV. So like not the best place for people to, to get to watch it. But if a bunch of people decide to use their, a free trial for Apple to watch Wolf Walkers, then I think that has to be uh, a net positive overall. Um, so like, and I think that the, this crop of films generally being pretty good and being a decent selection of movies that deserve more attention mm. um, is overall positive. And, and also, I the thing that I find myself wondering about is, like, did this slate come together because there wasn't the same kind of campaigning as previous years? That, you know, you weren't getting people gathering together at galas, you weren't getting people going to screenings where they got to, as we've talked about, you know, like having uh, Q&As with the directors, but everything being done at home virtually, did that in some way allow some of these movies that are smaller to shine through more? And, you know, did that hurt something like Hillbilly Elegy, which ended up with like a couple of token acting nominations, which would usually have all the makings of like a real powerhouse, you know, performer, if Glenn Close and Amy Adams had the full force of Netflix behind them, were able to just go out and just kind of really work the uh, work the Academy, and instead, you know, that film, people watching it, go, uh, well, I like them, so I'll nominate, mm. I'll nominate them, nominate them for it. You know, that, I think that's a weird side effect of the uh, pandemic to think about, and does make me wonder if, like, you know, will the Oscars next year, when theoretically things have like opened up and things are a bit more normal um will it kind of like revert to form or just get like eight incredibly boring movies nominated yeah i feel you ed and i also think that there is definitely benefit to it being in the kind of ecosystem mm. but i also think it is a fantastically expensive way to <laughs> to do that but hey i'm with you if riz ahmed wins and he essentially manages to siphon off that attention and capital around him into his activism i mean that would be phenomenal uh, and the only other news story i had for this week was uh that the snyder cut is out uh, <laughs> i haven't watched it yet because i had to watch an eight hour movie for the uh for the main <laughs> topic but uh, i'll probably watch it like what i've seen from the clips of it make it seem at least interesting in terms of some of the choices that Zack snyder has made and it is certainly a it's just it's just a weird thing that this uh, new version of the movie has kind of been manifested through uh, sheer uh, force of will on the, the part of people on the internet uh, letting Zack Snyder kind of finish out something close to whatever his vision of, of Justice League was meant to be. It's just very, very... Yeah, it's just a very curious thing, and I'm not sure we'll ever really see anything like it happen again. Yeah, it's a bit unsettling. I'm worried that too many people are reading The Secret and thinking they can manifest anything. Look, I haven't watched it mm. yet either, but I am enjoying seeing the same joke being made over and over again on Twitter. So <laughs> you, 
carry on with your Snyder <laughs> questions. It's fine. Uh, so we'll get on to the main topic for this week, which is um, kind of what, I'm, what I broadly kind of come up with as personal documentaries. So this would be documentaries that either are people investigating a subject that is very personal to them or people who just have like such a distinctive style that all of their documentaries end up feeling personal. And this was brought on, uh, as I alluded to just a second ago, by the new movie by Adam Curtis, uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head, uh, which uh, he builds as an emotional history of the 20th century and is an eight-hour documentary broke up into six parts that aired on... Well, I aired, you know, debuted on the BBC iPlayer back in February and also uh, is on YouTube, uh, <laughs> which is where I watched it. And it is essentially kind of feels like a culmination of a lot of the things that he's done over the years. You can see bits and pieces of the Century of the Self or the Trap or the Power of Nightmares in there, you know, very much all about, but, but you know, where he talks about shadowy forces and, you know, economic, macroeconomics and psychology and algorithms and all this sort of stuff, essentially trying to make sense of the last 70 years or so of human history through... Um, the various ways in which different organizations have tried or, or individuals have tried to change the world in some way or another from um, uh, er Zhang Xing, the uh, wife of Chairman Mao, who's a kind of like a big fi uh, figure for sort of three or four of the, the episodes, to someone like Tupac Shakur, who kind of is a, is a major figure in the last couple of parts. And like a lot of his work, it's very digressive. It's very associative. You know, he's using all this stock footage and all this amazing music that he's digging out of the uh, BBC archive to craft a narrative about how the world we currently live in uh, came to be. And I always find his work very fascinating in that regard. You know, I find his approach to documentary making, which is so aggressively personal, it's so... Um, openly him trying to create a narrative that fits his vision of the world and that is in some ways a corrective to the as he's termed it I think in in, pre, in one of his other shorts the Odeerism which I think he, he was what the term he used of like one of his shorts that he did for Screen Wipe many years ago of people just kind of like feeling helpless and him essentially trying to argue by creating a work that is incredibly complicated and dense and hard to pass the world itself is actually not incredibly complicated and hard to pass that you know people just say it's complicated and hard to pass so that you kind of give up and become isolated and alone and i found the whole experience very moving in the end i did burst into tears sort of at the end where he talks about humans being stronger than um, than expected and talking about you know people waking up to the power of algorithms and the idea that you know all the anxiety and fear that people feel is really just artificially generated and it's something that we can escape from I found that to be incredibly moving um, but it is it is a very it, it, it's very interesting Adam Curtis's career because he is on one level you would think the idea of someone making these incredibly long documentaries that are just stock footage set to John Carpenter soundtracks would be you know, just like incredibly dry or there wouldn't be an audience for it, but it really does feel like the singularity of his vision over the past, like, particularly the last, like, 15 years or so, um, or the last 20 years or so, whenever The Power of Nightmares came out, 
it really feels as the cult of, of him has really kind of grown exponentially in that time. And he really is finding like this really big audience for his kind of bloated, uh, digressive documentaries. Mm. I'm with you, Ed. I did sort of find that the very ending of Can't Get You Out of My Head really brought together why he called it an emotional history. Because I think mm. this is actually not only his most authored documentary, I think it's also his most personal. Mm. Because I think often people are sort of put to sort of Adam Curtis like maybe that he's like apolitical. Whereas I think that really he's like a narrative historian. And mm-hmm. he's encouraging you to understand that he has constructed a narrative. Not that there is no truth to it whatsoever in some kind of like sort of hardcore postmodernism, but more just that he's not going to, he, he's not pretending to present you with some kind of like blanched and impersonal objective. Yeah. Like an objectivity. But I think can't get you out of my head for exactly that bit that you just described at the end. I was like, oh, it's, he's getting emotional about it. And I think Mm. the more that he's seen, and as you say, like, as he's getting to the point of the work that he's making, and it's almost like, is anyone paying attention? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Is anyone getting the point? I don't mean this in something sort of misanthropic, because I do think that at points, can't get you out of my head, can feel quite relentless. Yeah. In a way that can feel quite pushing, sort of like, just really pushing down on you as you're watching it. But what I think is remarkable about it is that Adam Curtis is one of the few documentarians, and I'd argue that Mark Cousins is probably the only other person who does this, is take a really wide global perspective. Because Mm. so often documentaries kind of just work within a country or a couple of countries. I've learned so much about areas of the world you know particularly the east as opposed to the west you know mm. and to and to have more of that influx and to understand how oh yeah maybe the west isn't like maybe no one's the good guys <laughs> but everyone is in, immensely flawed and i think what i really enjoyed is that even though i've always considered him to be like a globalist in his perspective he finally mm. started to talk about climate change <laughs> That was quite nice. So not just around the world, but putting the world as a sort of being and an entity in itself. And I think it's a hot mess, but I think that's part of its strength. I don't think it's Mm. necessarily meant to be completely cohesive. And I think I still think it's a bit too long. But then it's one of those pieces of work where every so often I'd have a reaction and just think, is this part of it? Is this all? Because I think he's an incredibly astute person who is wanting to put across how he sees things, but he's not actually, I think he's fine if you don't agree with him. Does that make sense? Like, I think he is a truly sort of like individual thinker, which is quite ironic given so much of what he seems to be criticizing is individualism. And Mm. And I wonder how much of it is just because how much I love him because of when I made a coffee for him, Ed. So this was 2008 and it was my first doc fest whilst working at the showroom. 
and I was on Kiosk <clears throat> and Adam Curtis was being whipped through by Hussein Kurumboy, who was one of the best human beings that's ever lived. And I made this coffee and I was chatting. And I said to Adam, as I handed him his coffee, and he said thank you, that it sounded like the big public talk that he'd done at the Crucible was lighting up Twitter. And I wasn't using Twitter heavily at this point. And he said something so like deliciously soundbitey, like Twitter is a outrage machine and nothing more, which in 2008 is quite an incredible sort of foresight for Twitter because that was still the era of Twitter where everyone was like, oh, it's sort of nice and we're all just starting to be here. But it wasn't kind of like mm. the mass take up um, of kind of Web 2.0 because I think Twitter really hit kind of. I mean, you could say it's it's stride <laughs> um, in about 2012, basically after I sort of first joined it and started to really use it, Ed, because I am not someone who adopts things early. I come to things late. So if I've started, I'm like, oh, every fucker's on it now because I am. But and I just thought, oh, OK, because he wasn't disagreeing with me. He wasn't mm. trying to put me in my place. He was just saying that's what he thought of it. And he turned away and I saw that over his arm he had a handbag that had a picture of a chihuahua on it and lots of pink diamante. And I just thought, mm. I absolutely love you. Like that was a moment <laughs> where I just immediately thought you're brilliant and you genuinely do not give a fig for what anyone else thinks of you. Mm. And, but it's not like, but that's not in a hostile way. Cause I think so often people say like, I don't care what other people think of me. And I'm like, sounds like you do. And also that just like, I don't care, the first three words of that sentence. And I think what comes across to me, particularly and can't get you out of my head, is how much Adam Curtis cares. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, if you were to try and sum up him, you know, his approach, he feels very much like a humanist to me. Um, particularly, yeah, li literally the, the point of the whole thing, like at the end is basically saying that, you know, all of these behavioural psychologists and engineers and people who designed all of these systems have, you know, for a hundred years were so convinced that humans were these, like, so malleable and so easy to manipulate. And then suddenly there's all this research saying, oh, actually, no. <laughs> like, you can maybe make people very anxious and very scared, but you can't change who they are, you can't change what they believe. And the moments in the documentary that, to me seemed like the ones that he that he seemed to get the most affected by were those instances where people were destroyed by that quest to change human beings like when he's talking about the mk ultra stuff um mm. where he's where he's talking about the stuff that is covered in wormwood uh, wormwood yeah the the errol morris kind of pseudo documentary from a couple of years ago where it's all about you know these cia experiments believing that you could reprogram someone and then suddenly you know realizing oh not only can we not change who people are but we can't fix the people we broke into the we broke in the process and so much of the documentary is about people being broken by systems or their own brokenness being the thing that ends up like corrupting systems like um like so much of the stuff about uh Zhang Xing about you know her coming to power and then using it as a the, using the cultural revolution as a way to settle like decades old scores from when she was an actress or 
you know, so many instances of, of people trying to do something good or noble and unleashing forces that they couldn't possibly have predicted. And he does seem to be someone who has a great love for humanity in its various forms and a great um, suspicion of the systems that are put in place to control them and whatever forms they take whether it's government whether it's you know towards the end of the the documentary when he starts talking about google and facebook and all of these various technological forms of control totally and i think the other element of kind of personal documentaries is that adam curtis is just one of the most distinctive documentarians of the past Mm. 20 years and so often like documentarians aren't really that sort of visible even in the public arena like directors are for films you know for for fiction films for narrative films and i don't think they're necessarily always given as much credit and auteurness like what like maybe nick broomfield and you know but i think you have to be into documentaries to really know some of these Mm. filmmakers and i think a lot of them do would rather kind of are happier behind a camera and want to point it at the world but i think because adam curtis puts so much of himself in his work and as far as i'm aware he's always narrated everything that he's ever made and he is telling you a story so there is this i don't know sort of auteur edge to it that makes him also incredibly easy to parody because he is so distinctively him yeah, like, if you watch enough of his documentaries, and, like, I think this one is especially apparent because it is so long, so he there are certain stock phrases that just keep cropping up over and over. <laughs> but, like, there are just certain phrases that, you know, every time they crop up, you just kind of think, ah, oh, this is when you would take a shot in the drinking game. <laughs> like, any time anytime he goes, powerful elites, or, but it was all a lie. You yeah. know, like, those <laughs> yeah. are definitely the ones where you think, ah, yes, this is the classic Adam Curtis shit. But yeah, like that—that that is part of what makes him so distinctive. Is like his his tone of voice, the way he speaks, bore. So you know, he has certain writerly ticks that kind of keep cropping up over and over. That make him so like a really distinctive figure, in a way that would not be the case if you know he made documentaries more traditionally, or if if he just kept the same style, but you know had someone else narrating it. Like you do feel like there is so much of him going into it, and I, I think. That also is kind of reflected in the soundtrack a little bit. Like, one of the things I love about all of his movies is that they they have a certain emotional tenor that always comes through in, like, the really sad, eerie electronica that he likes to use. But each one will be subtly different, and each time you kind of think, oh, like, he was really getting into Aphex Twin when he was making this one. <laughs> like, um, you know, in, in Can't Get You Out, out of My Head, you know, he uses uh, Avril 14th which is uh, one of my favourite pieces of music. Mm. Uh, the one that uh, Kanye West weirdly sampled and I don't think ever paid for. Uh, but also he uses uh, the song Three, which is off of Selected Ambient Works 2, which is like this really kind of like sad, eerie bit of music that is used like throughout. And it's fun hearing like that. And then I think the last one, Bitter Lake, I think, you know, or Hypernormalization. 
like you could tell he was really getting into burial at that point so like he loves burial (laughs) yeah so i think you can that's one of the things that's really fun about his music and another element of his personality that really comes through is in the soundtrack choices which do feel as personal and distinctive as like when tarantino like picks some obscure like 60s pop track or whatever absolutely and it's so nice you just reminded me there ed of how nice it was to listen to Adam and Adam, the Adam Buxton podcast mm. with him and how Adam Curtis basically just fanboys over burial and yeah. that he is someone who likes what he likes and doesn't feel a need to sort of over explain it or justify it, you know, because he, he looks up to musicians, I think in particular in, in with such awe and appreciation and reverence because he knows the power of what they will bring to his images mm. um also just uh he used um song fazula by phosphorescent which i haven't heard in ages and i was like i really need to revisit that album machado so thanks ad mm, the other one the the other song that i was like man i haven't heard that song in ages was um i think it's by a group called johnny boy and it's a song called uh you were the generation who bought too many shoes and you get what you deserve <laughs> which <laughs> Is a very obscure song that I remember playing a lot on my student radio show at university because I think their album was produced by James Dean Bradfield of the Manic Street Peaches and it has a very Manic sort of sound to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, like that that was like a pull that's like, man, I haven't heard that song in a long time. <laughs> but um, it was very welcome uh, hearing it. And also a last, a final point before we move on to other uh, documentaries. I thought one of the things I thought was quite interesting in this one is that there are so many musical breaks and dance, essentially dance numbers um, where he takes footage of like Chinese ballet or people dancing in like a Northern music hall and he'll just let it play out for like a minute or two at a time. And I found that to be really interesting and I was trying to pass out what it was, but then you said um, about how the documentary feels relentless and I thought, oh, right, yeah, that's why there are so many dance numbers, because really and truthfully, you do need that release valve. And even though I think they also have kind of a thematic purpose, because often they kind of serve to illustrate some point about a sense of isolation, or particularly when he's talking about Britain and this idea of Britain as this like decaying, faded empire that keeps kind of looking to an imagined past and becoming kind of uglier and uglier over time like even so like so like you'll have less stuff about fucking morris dancers and things like that mm-hmm. um they also do serve to be just kind of like just a break from like when he's talked about like just some of the awful things that people have done like it's nice to have just a minute or two of like people dancing to you know whatever piece of music he's picked you know mm-hmm. it, is, it is quite a nice little break uh, so we'll talk about some other kind of personal documentaries here. The uh, the first one I had on my list of a documentary that is incredibly personal to the filmmaker making it is uh, No Home Movie by Chantal Ackerman. Oh my God, that was the top of my list as well. <laughs> which I think was the first Chantal Ackerman movie I saw, which is a weird place to start oh, wow. because I feel like it's so informed by her style and is so kind of like tied up to her life story but it is so it's such a powerful piece of work you know it was her fine ended up being her final film because she she died um a year or two after it was released 
and it is all about her relationship to her mother who you know in, in the, the last years of her life and it, also it kind of forms the bookend of another film she made um letters uh, news from home which she made in the 70s which is also this like deeply personal thing about her relationship with her family and i just it's one of those documentaries that even though there is nothing like in it that you would say like oh my god this is like hard to watch like there's nothing violent in it there's nothing horrible in it it is just so personal like just so keyed into their relationship and exploration of a very particular dynamic between two people that it is incredibly like painful and personal to watch um in the best possible way and i I find it to be such a such a moving piece of work Mm. also i thought one of the things i thought was quite interesting in terms of i'm sure this is just me not being able to think of, of things but um most of the different examples I had of documentaries that kind of I would count as personal documentaries all seem to be fairly recent. Mm-hmm. So, uh, obviously, um, No Home Movie, I think that came out in like 2010 or something. So that was fairly, fairly, you know, only a couple of years ago. Um, also, more recently, something like Stories We Tell, the... Uh, oh, why can't I remember her name? Sarah um, Polly. That's right. Uh, yes, Sarah Polly movie. Uh, which is her telling a story about her family history and kind of trying to investigate various questions that she has about her mother, um, which is like a really beautiful piece of work. And I wonder how much of that is just down to the fact that we have been going through like such a boom of documentaries in the last sort of 10, 15 years, particularly once, you know, once digital cameras of a very good quality became widely available at a cheap price that you could get either people who you know are in the film industry but maybe wouldn't necessarily you know take the time to make these kind of documentaries if they wasn't really cheap to do so or people who are like totally outside of the film industry like uh bing Lu when he made mind in the gap um who are able to just kind of go okay i'll just make a documentary and they're able to make it look and sound really nice and like make it very professional and so you're able to dig in on a personal subject without you know bankrupting yourself mm-hmm. and knowing that there'll be way more avenues for you to get that sort of stuff out because i know you know it's been a while since i last went to Docfest, but you know the last time that i went to Docfest, everyone was buzzing about how like netflix were buying stuff up like that was the first couple of years when netflix were really getting into acquisitions and i think in the years since then like other streamers have just really gone to town on buying documentaries at festivals like that to kind of put them out into the world. So there now feels like it's cheaper to make documentaries and it's easier to get them distributed than it has been previously. So maybe there is more of a audience out there and more avenues out there just to make documentaries that are about these incredibly small, intimate stories that, you know, don't need to have some kind of wide, necessarily some sort of wider hook to them. That's really interesting and I do think that kind of going back ever so slightly to our news and looking at the Oscars, I think there's something about maybe a lot of the smaller scale stories or at least it's weird to say low concept, but we have high concept, right? Which suggests the existence Mm. of low concept and they are those you know, and it's not to say that it can't be an incredibly affecting film, 
but it's essentially mm. what have I already got in that sort of Robert Rodriguez, you know, make an inventory of what you have access to. And it's like, well, myself and my family. But I wonder mm. whether the sort of proliferation of Netflix in particular is that it feels sometimes a little bit easier to watch these stories on a smaller screen mm. than go to yeah. somewhere where even though I think everything looks beautiful, bigger on a cinema screen, there's not as much of a kind of visual spectacle necessarily. And I think Sarah Polly does these really beautifully observed smaller stories, not just in her own documentaries, but in like The Last Waltz. That's the one with Michelle Williams, isn't it? Uh, take This Waltz. Take This Waltz. Thank you. Take This Waltz, because it's a Leonard Cohen thing, Canadian Connection, of mm. course. Take This Waltz and Away From Her. Yep. Yeah. Like beautiful films. Yeah, and also, like, to go back to the Oscars, one of the Oscar-nominated movies this year is a documentary called Time, which is uh, directed by Garrett Bradley and follows the... It's basically constructed of home movies of uh, this woman called Fox Rich, who whose husband goes to jail, and it, encom- it encompasses, like, 20 years' worth of home movies of her family kind of like growing up without the father being around and her efforts to try and you know secure him uh release because um if i remember correctly it's been a few weeks since i last saw it but like they were both involved in a robbery but she you know got a short sentence and he got sent away for longer um and it is a very kind of like intimate documentary just because of the fact that you are just seeing footage of these people's lives over a long period of time and you get to know them and their problems and their travails and and you get to know them as people and you know quote unquote as characters and i feel like that level of access is kind of like a huge part of that i think that's that's also something you see in stories we tell which is obviously like more considered you know there's like interviews with people uh you know kind of reminiscing and there's reconstructions and things like that but sort of that level of access to people and their stories you know is is so crucial for making a documentary feel have that level of intimacy rather than being you know this kind of like bird's eye view or this kind of like dispassionate look at a story from a total outsider Mm. Uh, another example i had of a deeply personal documentary was uh, stony island the uh movie from yancey ford that was nominated for a best uh, for best documentary a few years ago where he talks about the murder of his brother which i think happened in the 90s and is this like incredibly personal story about um the murder itself the impact that it had on yancey ford's life you know his uh identity as a trans man and you know how that plays into his family relations and there is you know there's one moment in it where um where he basically just kind of like screams in anguish while he's doing like one of the interviews and you can hear it kind of like distorting on the mic and yeah that is very much in keeping with the idea of like a personal documentary not only telling a personal story but you know using techniques that you just wouldn't do if you're doing kind of a more standard distance documentary where you are just really looking into the pain and anguish of the people involved as opposed to presenting this thing like as an objective observer yeah so one of the final films that i watched before i cancelled my netflix account was dick johnson is dead which Mm. you recommended to me very strongly ed and i'm really glad you did because it's one of those things that 
again, I think Netflix just distributed rather than it being an original. Um, mm. But it, you couldn't really get more personal in this very offbeat sort of way than this. And for anyone who's not familiar with it, Dick Johnson is Dead is a film made by Kristen Johnson, who is the daughter of Dick Johnson. And as her dad begins to show signs of dementia and that that is worsening, the the sort of immediacy of trying to get her head around the fact that she will lose him and that that seems to be coming closer, she kind of makes herself and her dad laugh by saying like, I just imagined you dying in all these various different ways. And then it was like, well, why don't we sort of make it? So in this weird sort of exposure therapy, almost for the both of them, because he's just such a good sport about all of it, they stage all of these various different possible ways for him to die. But it's not like Harold and Maud. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you you are always aware of the construction of these scenes. And it's very brief if you see these scenes at all. Like the the majority of the film is about Dick as a person, the loss of his wife, Kristen's mother, other people sort of talking about him. And there's something really kind of amazing about the fact that he's not dead and yet sort of this kind of living celebration of him with the awareness that the end is coming, that it's really hard not to find incredibly moving and genuinely life-affirming not just of Dick Johnson, but of anyone that you love. And it is just incredibly kooky because I think, you know, well, speaking on behalf of you and I as bereaved people, Ed, it can be Mm. very difficult to bring up grief or loss or appreciation or talk about, well, we're going to die, we're all going to die one day without people understandably freaking out about it. Whereas I think there's something incredibly admirable about (laughs) grabbing the grim reaper by the horns because he's got horns in this analogy and just being (laughs) like okay cool well let's just ride it out in the way that Kristen johnson sort of sees the world and she made camera person before this Mm. and that this is how she processes things and little bits like seeing her record the voiceover for the documentary as you're hearing it in like a closet in her apartment on her phone <laughs> and just this really kind of giddy I don't know I just love that we're always behind the scenes of it and and the, yeah. the film is these sort of strange tableaus and sequences but it's also the very making and every time they explain the premise to someone else is like a really lovely running joke almost mm. Yeah, and I really love like like you said when they're they're staging like the death where he's walking down the street and then an air conditioner falls on his head, and like um, immediately afterwards, then like the crew rush in and they start like picking up the stuff and they kind of like cleaning him off and all this sort of stuff. So you are always a part of the production as it's going on, and you know that feels true because um, you know Kristen Johnson is a documentary filmmaker she's you know been involved as a cinematographer making documentaries for the best part of two decades so you know it would only be right that you see the process of how they're going about this as well as seeing the end results and the behind the scenes stuff of you know explaining her you know complicated living situation Mm -hmm. or or whatever that's going on i feel like um 
that all kind of adds to the authenticity with that rather than you know what you would think you know would be the opposite that it would puncture the bubble uh, and yeah the, the last kind of like thing that uh i wanted to talk about in this is that there have been a couple of very personal documentary series on tv recently both on hbo over here in the u.s um uh painting with john the john lurie painting show um <laughs> question mark where john lurie um kind of ambles around his house in the caribbean and paints and kind of like tells stories from his life and kind of opines on art and all this sort of stuff which is incredibly funny and uh weirdly life-affirming uh, and also a show that you and I have both talked about um, a fair bit, uh, How To with John Wilson, which is like Adam Curtis, you know, is a is a show that uh, has a lot of kind of like discursive qualities to it, has a very kind of distinctive voice to it and makes very good use of, you know, kind of like editing and montage to make points. But instead of being about, you know, the shadowy forces that control the world, whatever it's, you know. <laughs> For really funny visual gags. <laughs> yeah, it is it is hilarious. And I do think, you know, John Wilson and Adam Curtis, what they have in common are that very personal view of the world and an absolute sort of genius sense of editing. Mm, yeah. And also kind of an interest in people, but For sure. um, obviously the John Wilson the John Wilson focuses so much more uh small scale just by dint of the fact that he is you know kind of telling these weird offbeat uh stories from people he meets as opposed to mm. you know uh the the history of humanity in the way that Adam <laughs> Curtis is but yeah I think both that uh how to and painting with John I think are really good illustrations of the direction that the personal documentary can kind of like go in particularly where you basically say to these two people who have such distinctive visions and distinctive ways of looking at the world and just basically saying yeah kind of like just go off and do whatever you want really and then bring it back uh, uh is that you can end up with these these things that do feel wholly unique and in the case of how to john wilson you know you weirdly end up with an episode that captures you know the historic um event of the the pandemic hitting new york mm. I which love kind of really sound. yeah it, which you know is is really interesting in that it then ends up like recontextualizing recontextualizing pretty much everything that went before but yeah like i i find it really interesting that both of those shows kind of like debuted so close to each other and that they feel so much more exciting and edifying in terms of the potential directions that the documentary format can go in versus like the hundreds of true crime documentaries that netflix and hbo are constantly pumping out which all feel like they overextend themselves and you know kind of take what should be a film length story to six hours mm-hmm. so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot verse shot recommends which we talk about piece of a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well, Ed, now that mm-hmm. I've... Uh, have I mentioned that I've cancelled my Netflix subscription? Um, but what I have done mm-hmm. is um, fill that subscription void hole in my life by doing a real Substack spree. 
and I wish I had the money to pay all of these writers absolutely what they deserve but I am for the time being really enjoying the free content that they are providing and oh my word I've just got so many to recommend I think maybe baby from Hayley Narman I'm really sorry Hayley I'm probably pronouncing your last name wrong going downs from Claire Downs Ooh, what's what's another great one grief bacon oh from Helena Fitzgerald that is I that is one that I keep forwarding to people that I love. <laughs> that it's like the writing in Grief Bacon, particularly the last three where she's finally watched the Before trilogy and gone on like really mm. deep dives on on each of them. Oh, chef's kiss. Absolutely beautiful. So yeah, and if, you, if you're ever stuck for something to read, just pop me a little DM on Twitter because I just love recommending these people. I think they're all wonderful and I'm currently... I think I'm subscribed to about 24, 25 different Substack newsletters at the moment. Um, so hopefully there's something in there for some of you. Cool. I am going to recommend uh, a film that I mentioned. Uh, that, uh, wait, did we actually mention that on the show or did we just mention it before? Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to recommend the Shaun the, Shaun the Sheep uh, Farmageddon, <laughs> which is now Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated! Uh, <laughs> um delightfully so uh it's very very funny it's hugely enjoyable like a lot of the best of Ardman stuff it's got this kind of like real density of humor to it where there's always something funny happening on screen whether it's slapstick whether it's a kind of a pun whether it's just some sort of silly visual thing that they're doing like there's just so much to love in it and it's kind of really sweet uh it's like the previous Shaun the Sheep movie it kind of has a pretty decent story to it you know it's all about you know an alien coming to planet earth and uh meeting sean the sheep and kind of getting into scrapes and you know it's just very very enjoyable and is very much the textbook example of like family entertainment like there is something there for pretty much anyone who likes a laugh um <laughs> so yeah so that's uh wait is that's uh, Sean the Sheep movie Farmageddon, I think it's called. It's got, <laughs> it's got a very awkwardly named title, but um, it's an absolute delight. I believe it's on Netflix. Uh, certainly here in the US, I think it is, and it is just, it's just an absolute delight. And you, you cannot go wrong with Ardman in general. But uh, yeah, that one's just an absolute delight. So check it out. The Academy got that one right for sure. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are, at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.